I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, Hollywood is really good at turning innovation into tragedy. The end of the silent film industry is the end. You know what I mean? This is it. So this is so emotional for me to see it. Then the things we buy might soon have to reach a higher standard. Using sort of a design sensitivity towards making things that are respectful of our attention and our time, that handle data in a responsible way, and that also sort of talk nice to an ecosystem of other things around them. Plus, why Amish businesses are so successful. And yes, they are wildly successful. The secret to their success, the secret, I would argue, is in a single word, and that is the word apprenticeship. That's all coming up next on Innovation Hub. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. You may have heard this story before, but here it is. A beautiful but self-centered actress realizes her career is starting to slip away, and she comes up with a cruel method of salvaging it. The idea is to crush the career of a young and undiscovered but more talented actress who has captured the heart of the guy she loves. And while she's at it, this beautiful self-centered actress wants to steal the younger actress's talent by having her dub her lines in a high-profile movie. Because it turns out that beauty alone can only get you so far. What's wrong with the way I talk? What's the big idea? Am I dumb or something? That's Lena Lamont from the movie Singing in the Rain. She's not a real person, but she expresses a real fear that a change in technology, in this case the move from silent films to talking films, is going to ruin her. If she's done such a grand job doubling for my voice, don't you think she ought to go on doing just that? And nothing else. Lena, you're out of your mind. After all, I'm still more important to the studio than she is. Lena, I wouldn't do that to her in a million years. Why, you'd be taking her career away from her. People just don't do things like that. People? I ain't people. I am a a shimmering, glowing star in the cinema firmament. Mark Wanamaker, a longtime Hollywood historian and a consultant on films like La La Land, says that the pain of technological upheaval, which has been talked about so much in relation to politics and American culture today, that's nothing new. And in the 1920s, it ripped Hollywood apart. It did ruin careers. It even strained relationships. We're going to go down and we're going to pass in a few moments the uh, bungalow of Douglas Fairbanks where he courted Mary Pickford in 1920. I talked with Wanamaker about the early days of Tinseltown on a trip to Hollywood last year. We walked in the rain around one of the oldest studio backlots, Raleigh Studios, which has been in use for over a hundred years. I believe United Artists Studio was born here. That's where the first meetings were held here. Mm. And before he married Mary Pickford, who was working across the street where Paramount is today, was another studio at the time. We're talking 1919, 1920. Um, she used to come here and rendezvous with him. This was their, their little nest. It was a rainy day when I visited, which was unusual. But even more unusual than the rain was that I had an undiagnosed upper respiratory infection. I finally realized it, but not until I spent an interesting morning in a Beverly Hills urgent care clinic. That's why my voice is going to sound a little bit scratchy here. So anyway, back to my visit with Mark Wanamaker. 
Raleigh Studios is particularly special because of its association with Fairbanks and Pickford, the sort of Brad and Angelina of their day. Except that Fairbanks and Pickford were global stars at a time when there were not many other people on the red carpet. They were megastars on steroids. And the coming of sound, Wanamaker says, put strains on their marriage. Because Mary made the transition while her husband struggled. Doug was extremely insecure by the time sound came in. He thought his career was over. He, he was very, very, uh, you know, sensitive. She tried to bring him into the sound thing. They did two or three pictures with sound. But he was, in his mind, just drifting away. Did and they separated. Did he think his voice wasn't good enough? Or what was no, it no, all? it wasn't okay. that. He okay. just didn't fit in. He felt he didn't fit in. And that broke up their marriage. And they regretted it, both of them that this happened, that they couldn't come together and they didn't have counseling or any of this kind of thing, right? So it was a tragedy that they broke up and he died young, you know, in his 50s. And she started drinking and all this. She married a buddy, uh, Rogers, a friend of hers from years ago. It was a marriage of convenience, but she was happy and she lived to, to be in her 80s, but always regretted that Doug and her, that was the love of her life. Wanamaker says that what happened to Fairbanks and Pickford was a lot like the story of Singing in the Rain, in which just one member of an on-screen couple has the right skills for talking pictures. And there's trauma when only some people feel successful. Many of them uh, had to fall behind. Oh, they had a weird voice. They had a squeaky voice. There's, I mean, the man looks like, you know, a big he-man, and he has a squeaky voice. No good. The woman has a squeaky Brooklyn accent or something. No good. So then a whole new industry of voice coaches came in to, to coach them on losing their accent or lowering their voice or just how to speak properly on Which the stage. Which is a big part of Singing in the Rain, right? They do have to get voice coaches who teach you them how to that? be sort of debonair. Now let me hear you read your line. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 And what's so great about Singing in the Rain, they have this technique in which, remember, Debbie Reynolds goes behind there and speaks and sings and stuff for the woman who, the other actress, who was a big silent star, can't do anything. And her voice is horrible. What are you going to sing, Miss Lamont? Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. Singing in the Rain. In uh, what key? A flat. A flat. In A flat. What a perfect film, and that's exactly, and also, where do you put the mics? They didn't know how, where to put the microphones. They put them in flower pots, if you noticed in there, or they, they finally started hanging them. They were giant microphones uh, called cylinder microphones. They weighed like 20 pounds, and they finally had to build booms to hold these things. And then, say, you're right, right now, I'm talking into a mic. Say, right now, I'm speaking to someone else on my left. Over here. Oh, wait a minute. The mic has to follow me over. See the trouble? Yeah. Now, Lena, look. Here's the mic. Right here in the bush. 
Yeah. Now you talk towards it. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush. If you go back to the teens and the 20s and you think about, like, these big stars, do you think people thought we're at the beginning of something huge? Or do you think they thought, who knows where this is going? Like, did they realize that they were pioneers and innovators in you know, in the way we think of them now? Yeah, uh, at the time when sound was coming in, people like Roy, Walt Disney, Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, all these silent people, you know, who worked in the silent industry, this was a revolution in sound. It was a revolution in the making of films. And they were making all kinds, they had to write scripts differently. This was incredible. Now, at the early days, they would take stage plays and film them. They didn't know what else to do. They don't know how to write. How do you write a screenplay with, that's made for sound? They, they had to relearn the whole industry. King Vidor, the famous director, he told me that he was, he, by the way, he was a great silent filmmaker, which is a whole different way of making films. It's more symbolic. You don't hear dialogue. It's, it's faces. It's movements it's, and locations, things like this. Sound is words, uh, and, and it's a whole different thing. People think that Warner Brothers, who did The Jazz Singer with Al Jolson, was the first talkie film. It's not. There were talkie films and musical films all the way back to 1898. Alice Guy Blaché, the first woman director in the world in France in 1890s, made 103 sound films before 1905. Wow. They had special sound companies all around the country, United States and Europe, that were making sound films. So when, when there was that switch over from silent movies to talking pictures, um, how did theaters go about like retrofitting their theater to have sound in them? Such an critically important question. So in those days, they had theaters all over the country that, that showed silent films. Now, silent films were never silent. They were always with a live orchestra, piano, organ, whatever, whoever they could afford to have. They, they had this. But in 19, um, as I mentioned earlier, there were sound films for, for 20 years. But you needed special equipment in those theaters to see them. And very few theaters had this. It was a novelty. So the first company to really seriously put their money where their mouth was was the Warner Brothers. It was in 1926 when they, they invested with banks millions of dollars in putting sound equipment in the theaters. Nobody else was willing to try because what if the public's not interested in talking films? So they decided to try out Don Juan, which was the famous story Don Juan with John Barrymore. But he wasn't talking and it. it would be sound synchronized orchestra music to go in the background. And sound effects. Remember when, well, if you've seen the film, there's sword fighting. So the sword fighting, you'd hear clicking sounds, you know, click, 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 and uh, other sound effects. So they opened it up in 1926. Great success. Everyone thought this is fantastic. The, you know who didn't like it? The uh, musician unions around the country. That means they don't need orchestra anymore. Oh, man, there was such a hue and cry for the musicians. So the studios employed them in other ways, uh, other methods and whatever to keep them quiet. And then um, shortly after this, Warner Brothers decided, okay, we're going to try out now musical soundtrack, but also talking and singing on the films. 
And so they got Al Jolson, who was one of the biggest stars on the stage ever, superstar at that time. Any of you who never heard of Al Jolson, you have to just look him up on Wikipedia and you'll understand why he was big. Superstar. So they got him to do the jazz singer, which was a typical story about a young jazz singer who happens to be Jewish, and his parents were Orthodox Jews who, who thought he should be a cantor singing religious music you know, in the temple. And he says, no, I want to sing jazz, right? So there's a conflict in here. That's what the, the plot is. So Al Jolson, for the first time, people can see him and hear him singing his, some of his famous songs. Mama, listen, I'm going to sing this like I will if I go on the stage, you know, with this show. I'm going to sing it jazzy. Now get this. Blue sky, smiling at me, 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 me. Nothing but little blue sky, do I see? Do, 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 do. And it was a smash. Immediately, the other studios who were ready to go, gearing up, ready to invest the money, invested it. When Warner Brothers said, we want to spend a whole ton of money, wiring up theaters so that they'll be able to have sound in them. Was Warner Brothers really scared about that? I mean, were they just thinking, this could be throwing tremendous amounts of money away? A great, great question. There were four brothers. Two of them particularly did not want this. (laughs) They were worried they would be bankrupt in no time. Brothers divided. Because they had hard times. Between 1922 and 1926, Rin Tin Tin, their star of the silent era, was the only thing. Who was a dog, we should say, for people didn't know. Was saving the studio. Big star, huge star. They they were saving the studio because they were invested in theaters and everything else. They were not doing well. They were not doing well Mm. in, in the flapper era, as you think they might. So yes, so so Sam Warner convinced them we have to do this, and he pushed it and pushed it. Finally, the jazz singer comes out, and and they were just about to open the jazz singer in Los Angeles, in Hollywood, at the new Warner Theater. They just built it, Wilcox and Hollywood Boulevard, and he died of a of an infection in his ear. He died right before. It's so weird. He's the one that pushed all of this, and he dies on them. But the rest is history. Warner Brothers was successful. All the other studios jumped on the bandwagon, sound films, to what we have today. Were, I mean, movies have always been popular. Did, did bringing sound into movies make them a lot more popular? Another great question. Um, the whole silent industry, which was 30 years, was very popular. Serials and just everything, westerns and dramas, whatever you want. Shakespeare was being made. Epic films, et cetera, et cetera. And um, people were fascinated with the moving picture for those 30 years. They didn't have a moving picture until it started in 1898 when they started filming trains coming in and women's skirts blowing up. By the way, Marilyn Monroe's skirt blowing up is nothing new. They did that in 1903. And it was done in New York in which a woman with her husband walking down the street and in the subway blows her skirt up. Wow, that was a big deal, right? Wait, accidentally or like No, no, that planned, was on purpose. Okay, okay. Oh, yes. Okay. <laughs> but people in the audience went flipped out at this. <laughs> so anyway, but my point is, is that when sound came in, it was a novelty that they turned into the popular fair as something new. They all of a sudden they have musicals leading into Singing in the Rain, which is a typical film a musical of the 50s, talking about how this all happened. And after that, we had musicals forever, you know, everything from West Side Story to whatever you have from the Broadway 
to other original musicals just made for films. So it's always uh, trying to, to create something new to bring more people to the theaters. So is there a movie that's been like the most, you know, sort of pivotal movie in your own life? Yeah, that would be Sunset Boulevard, made at Paramount, with uh, William Holden, of course, and uh, Billy Wilder, who was the uh, director. And I love it because Gloria Swanson is in it. She stars as Norma Desmond. What is important about this film? This film was made in 1949 to 50, released in 50. It's very important to me because it represents, symbolically, the end of the silent film era into a modern era, which is the sound era, and um, it's all about these famous people, directors, actors, whoever they were, who worked in the silent era, and how their careers had ended because of it, because of sound coming in. And it also represents Hollywood, of the new Hollywood and the old Hollywood. And it's so strange because I visited the old back lots. I met many of the people that were in the silent era. It was, it's another era. That's the word for it. So this, I, I see this film, and it just brings home to me that this writer, William Holden, who's like, nobody wants him anymore, and it's a new, younger people coming in, and how he's trying to get a job in the business, and they look at him, he's a has-been. Here we have Gloria Swanson, one of the greatest, biggest movie stars in the world, who is now living as a recluse in her home with her butler, who happened to be her director, who lost his career as well. Wait a minute, haven't I seen you before? I know your face. Get out, or shall I call my servant? You're Norma Desmond. Used to be in silent pictures, used to be big. I am big. It's the pictures that got small. Uh-huh. I knew there was something wrong. They're dead. They're finished. There was a time in this business when they had the eyes of the whole wide world. But that wasn't good enough for them. Oh, no. They had to have the ears of the world, too. So they opened their big mouths, and out came talk. Talk, talk. That's where the popcorn business comes in. You buy yourself a bag and plug up your ears. And here, she's thinking of making a comeback. She's writing a great script, but it's, it's old-fashioned. Nobody wants it. But she's living in an illusion. And she gets this writer, William Holden, who's a has-been, to write this for her. He sees that it's just crazy lunacy. And by accident, she drives, her butler drives a great car, which the studios would like to use in a film. So they contact her, and she's delusional and thinks, they want me back. So she comes to the studio in all of her pomp and circumstances to see Mr. DeMille, who's still working. He's one of the few working in Hollywood. And DeMille, actually as DeMille in the film, and she comes to the stage and he sees her and, oh, it's great to see you again. And DeMille says, what's she doing here? And they say, well, there's a mistake, communication. They just want her car. They don't want her. Wanted what? DeMille didn't have the heart to tell you. None of us has had the heart. That's a lie. They want me. I get letters every day. You tell her, Max. Come on, do her that favor. Tell her there isn't going to be any picture. There aren't any fan letters except the ones you write. That isn't true. Max! You can see the, the dynamics of this script. It is so nostalgic, so tragic. And in the end, she ends up shooting Holden and killing him because he wants out. And she just can't have it. And she shoots him by accident, of course. But still, 
the tragedy of all this, the end of the silent film industry is the end. You know what I mean? This is it. So to me, this is so emotional for me to see it. Right. Well, it's a lot of, at any juncture like that, it's a ton of upheaval. I have to say, I've never seen Sunset Boulevard. It's but an you've, upheaval. That's you've it. inspired me. I'm going to go home. Oh, you have to see it. And watch Sunset Boulevard. Okay. It's an upheaval of a whole industry, people uh, involved, personalities, uh, real people, humanity involved, yep. who, are, who will die off obscure. It's adaptation, and some people will and some people won't. Exactly. Yeah. That's why Sunset Boulevard is my favorite film. And Singing in the Rain is my favorite for similar reasons. Mm. We, I mean, um, Gene Kelly is on his way out. And here's Debbie Reynolds coming and gives him new life. It's all related to the, to the um, different changes in film industry. Not just film industry. It's every industry, really. As the new is taking over the old. Old eras go out. But these are the pioneers. That's why we can't throw them away. We have to listen to them, learn from the people of the past so we don't repeat the problems that we've had in the, in the past, in the future, in the present. Like all the technology and everything. Everybody thinks it just came out of nowhere. No, all these people spent their whole lives developing this technology that we have today. I'm singing in the rain, just singing in the rain. What a glorious feeling, I'm happy again. I'm a huge thank you to Hollywood historian Mark Wanamaker for sitting down and talking to me and for walking me around Raleigh Studios in Hollywood. We're going to have a link to Bison Archives, which Wanamaker runs, which is where he's archived tons of pictures of old Hollywood. That's at innovationhub.org. Years ago, a product designer named David Rose wanted to solve a problem. At the time, he was running a small company that made what he calls glanceable devices. So, for example, an umbrella with a chip in the handle that checks on the weather for you, and then the handle pulses with a blue light if you should grab it from the coat rack before you rush out the door. He also made glowing orbs about the size of a snow globe that you put on your desk or on your kitchen counter And they, too, were connected to a source of data, just like the umbrella, and they would tell you something instantly. So they might glow red if energy prices were high at that moment and you should avoid using energy unnecessarily. Or you could have an orb connected to data about your blood sugar, which would glow green if your sugar levels were right on track. And we became really interested in this idea that if it tracks energy usage in the home, Like, would people pay attention? Would they change their energy behaviors? And it turned out we worked with um, San Diego Gas and Electric and Pacific Gas and Electric, and people would conserve about 20% of their electricity if they knew how much they were spending and how much it was costing them. Rose and his colleagues realized that they had entered the business of the nudge. And remember, this was before we were surrounded by internet-connected devices like Alexa from Amazon or Nest thermostats. Rose was effectively nudging consumers to act to reduce their energy usage, maybe to address their blood sugar levels, maybe to grab that umbrella before the sky opened up. And he wasn't doing it by sending an email or telling anybody to do anything. He was letting some random object in the house give people info that they didn't have before. 
Rose saw that connected devices had incredible potential for good, and he did something about it. So with that insight of like, oh, this is a behavior change object, not just something that's sort of fun to have around, but we can actually influence and nudge people in ways, um, we started working on some important health issues. And one of those health issues is most people, 50% of the people in this country are prescribed something that they take about 50% of the time, (laughs) despite the fact that their doctor says, do this every day. Um, So it's really $200 billion of unnecessary hospitalizations due to medication not adherence. Okay. So Um, they just decide, I've been prescribed this course of antibiotics. I I think I'm fine. For lots of reasons. Sometimes you just don't feel sick. Other times you don't understand why you need the med. Other times you just forget Mm -hmm. or you're out of them. So we thought, well, how can we use this Internet of Things technology, the ability to to know when someone has opened their, their medication packaging, their pill bottle cap, and once we have that data, you know, so what, what should we do with it? And so we started um, looking at the feedback loops that we could start to spin up. Like one is a personal feedback loop. Remind me so I don't forget. You know, send me a text message if I should have done this thing an hour ago, but I didn't do this. Another one is social feedback loops. Like if there's a, a loved one in my social circle, like a parent or a peer, um, and I can send an email every week to them that shows, shows them how I'm doing and taking my med. That's sort of a social incentive. Um, there's another just convenience incentive, like tell the pharmacy that I'm going to be out in two days, like order a refill for my script. And for things that are really important, like immunosuppressants for people that have a new kidney, um, they have a transplant coordinator that wants to know about this data so you don't have to you know, lose $50,000 of insurance money or, <laughs> or get in line again for a new liver. Right. Um, so we, we started to connect this data to those four areas and then started to see a huge change in behavior. So people that would have taken their meds 50% of the time are now paying taking them 90% of the time. And so, you know, I'm excited by what can the Internet of Things do for convenience in the home, but also to work on really important issues in cities, in healthcare, you know, in other things that, like, can really make a positive change in society. Rose's pill bottle idea was acquired by a bigger company, and it reinforced his notion that we could be surrounded by what he calls enchanted objects. He actually filled his house with them cabinets that were fitted with Skype so you would be connected to grandma when you opened them, a coffee table that instead of having an atlas on it had a screen connected to Google Maps so you could zoom here and there while you were sitting on the couch. Now we live in a world in which the objects around us are increasingly enchanted. Lots of people now wear connected watches and they've got connected doorbells with built-in cameras. Tens of millions of us have bought connected home devices like Amazon Echo, and that is expected to skyrocket in the next few years. And David Rose says, your future home may be filled with connected everything. The question is, what are these devices going to be giving you? And what are they going to be taking? Every single product company is thinking about how can they make their shoes, jewelry, luggage, doorbells, everything else connected. And, you know, how can that add value in people's lives and how can they 
sort of balance this need for product differentiation with the concern for privacy and like that's something that all companies are are facing today. Right, right. I had somebody say to me recently, I would pay, this is the other side of it, I would pay to keep a device that listens to my every word out of my home. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I wonder, um, what's promising here to you, what's mm. exciting here to you, and what's concerning here to you? Well, I think I mean one of the promising things is just how there's an opportunity for making many, many things more convenient, mm. you know, and, and actually a lot of people are concerned about privacy, but also these, you know, just to take the doorbell example, mm-hmm. like it's really nice to have a doorbell that has a little camera on it. People are voluntarily walking up to your door and you have Amazon packages that you hope are trying to be delivered. And so actually knowing who's there, knowing who's walking up to the door and not ringing your doorbell, um, you know, is comforting and sort of helps you in this need for safekeeping that we mm. all have. And is there, do you think there's a dark side to it? Is there a part that concerns you, either in terms of privacy or in terms of anything else? Absolutely. I I think the duration of how long data is saved, I mean, it's really free to keep data forever almost (laughs) these days. And so companies don't have um, a lot of reasons to uh, systematically and programmatically forget things. And I think, you know, for having companies that both give you the easy chance to hit a switch on your Nest thermostat and have it forget all everything it ever knew about you should be much easier. I think that's a really important component that every consumer electronics or data company needs to pay attention to, this ability to forget and not save data. Mm -hmm. But it it seems to me that um, what we're seeing company after company is that, you know, if they collect data, they're realizing, wow, this is incredibly valuable. Either we know your music preferences or we know when you come home and when you leave and whatever. And they don't want to forget. They could sell this on the open market or they can profit off it somehow. Maybe in a way you don't want them to, but still. Yeah, I'm concerned about the all of the cross-correlations that can be made from, uh, you know, your behavior about the photos that you share to, like, how could that, that could inform uh, vacation decisions or purchase decisions or other things. I mean, the flip side of that is... Even though big companies have a lot of data about us, they're still not able to very effectively advertise to us. You know, I mean, it's a persistent concern that we all have, but it's also a persistent failure of the advertising community that they still can't send me an email about the perfect vacation, even if they're <laughs> able to look at all of my pictures of everywhere I've gone for the last 10 years. Like, there seems to be almost a, a failure of of being able to mine that in a, in a useful way. Maybe, but they do follow you. I mean, certainly once you express an interest in buying black pants, all you see it feels like when you browse the web is ads for black pants. Right. And in many cases, that's a fail because you just purchased the black pants. <laughs> how, <laughs> how many do you need? That is true. Um, <laughs> I mean, I guess the one of the most interesting things about sort of where this industry has gone in the last couple of years is the preferred interaction modality seems to be voice, right? Like with Amazon's Alexa, mm-hmm. which has been a huge breakout product, People are becoming more and more used to talking to their stuff, you know, talking to ovens and talking to doors and talking to lighting. Um, and I think this is really short-sighted. Actually, I was a, a futurist in residence at IDO, the design firm, over the summer. Mm-hmm. 
and you know, sort of in a reaction to the the popularization of voice as as modality, um, we did a really interesting project about gesture because gesture is so much faster, maybe just as rich in some contexts, and can be subtle um, in a way that like voice is sort of embarrassing and sort of crude in some ways, like who really wants to say, like, turn on my light? Like, wouldn't you rather just sort of do what a mime does or a magician does or an orchestra conductor does and just, you know, wave your hand in a signature way and have the world do what you want? That's much more magical. Mm. Do you feel like these enchanted or connected objects could be used more for serious things, but are tending to be used more for like, Alexa, play happy birthday, which is fine, which is fine. But, you know, not helping you, you know, keep your kidney or anything. Mm. Yeah, well, I think different industries have different adoption rates for new technologies. I mean, healthcare may be one of the last because it's a highly regulated industry. In many industrial settings, you know, from factory automation uh, to mining to forestry to finding people who are lost, these types of like embedding sensors in everything from, you know, using drones and putting sensors on bridges has just become the standard way of doing business. And so if you look at the numbers, there are billions and billions of new little sensors. I was just talking at a water conference in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and they were talking about how sensors on water pipes which were originally put in just so that they could bill people for their water in New York, were used in order to find who hadn't evacuated after Sandy. So they were being used to, like, send rescue crews to buildings because they could monitor the water usage, and they knew that somebody was still living in a place that was supposed to be an evacuation zone. So So they're that ubiquitous in, like, New York, New Jersey, that they really knew, oh, that person's still taking showers or whatever. That's right. That's right. So there are all kinds of, like, interesting secondary uses for these things that were once put in for a very sort of mundane, like, just collect the money for the water. (laughs) Now you're seeing them used for other maybe more useful things. Even given all the connected stuff we are talking about, you know, we're sitting in a room in a studio, we've got a table and chairs and pencils and pens, and most of this stuff is not smart, it's dumb. Um, So is that, like, what's your vision? Is what we're seeing the beginnings of now with Alexa and Fitbit, is that just going to spread out? or Give me a sense of, like, five or ten years from now how things might be different. Well, the competitive dynamics in almost any product industry is driving these product companies to adopt new services, new ways of selling chairs or selling headphones or selling, you know, whatever we have around us, Mm -hmm. pencils. And so they all have innovation teams that or they're paying innovation consultancies like Frog and IDEO Mm -hmm. to think about how these new technologies can uh, differentiate and add more value to all of these ordinary products. Mm -hmm. And it's a mess right now. (laughs) Like, if you were at the Consumer Electronics Show, you would have seen this year, like, every single product category. Like, I can't think of one that wasn't showing some sort of connected version. So it's just, it's a mess right now, right? Like, you have internet-connected toilets where you ask them to put up the toilet seat. Um, I'm not sure people need that. Um, But, you know, you can see why these companies are doing it, right? And what I encourage my students to think about, and hopefully we can train you know, a new generation of students that are not just doing this because it's the next sort of whiz-bang thing, but that are using sort of a design sensitivity towards making things that are polite 
that are really respectful of our attention and our time, uh, that handle data in a responsible way, and that also sort of talk nice to an ecosystem of other things around them. David Rose has founded a string of companies. He's a researcher at MIT, and he's vice president of vision technology at Warby Parker. David, thank you so much. Thanks, Kara. This is super fun. And if you want to see some of the things that David Rose has created, from the umbrella that pulses with light if you should grab it on your way out the door, to the pill bottle that can text you, they are on display at the Museum of Science in Boston, which has been an underwriter of this show. Innovation Hub is collaborating with the Museum of Science to display the work of great inventors and designers and researchers. And first up is David Rose. So check it out if you live in Boston or if you're just passing through. There are few groups of people as committed to a way of life as the Amish, a way of life that they believe gets them close to God. And they've long been fascinating to tourists and scholars and TV audiences precisely because of that commitment. Donald Craybill is an expert on the Amish, and he argues that their rejection of technology in a world where screens are always in your face, it actually has not been a drawback. Ironically, it has only made them more successful and amazingly more creative. Craybill is a professor emeritus at Elizabethtown College in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, and he's the author of The Amish, among other books. Donald, thanks for being here. My pleasure. So here's just a very, very basic question uh, right off the bat. Why do the Amish live so differently than, than most of us do? I mean, what are they trying to achieve? Well, they are fundamentally a religious community. Their roots go back to the time of the Protestant Reformation in 16th century Europe. And one of their fundamental teachings in their religious uh, belief is that the church should maintain separation from the world. So a lot of their peculiar practices, particularly related to technology and so on, is an attempt to apply that principle to everyday life of how they can maintain separation from the larger culture and the larger world. Hmm. What are their limits in terms of technology? So Amish church members are not permitted to own an automobile or to have a driver's license. And so as a sociologist, I would argue that the fundamental purpose of that, the way it works, is to keep the community together. They fear that having an automobile will fragment their community. People will drive off to jobs. Hmm. And if by using horse transportation, it tethers them to the local community. Now, one of the important things to understand about their technology is that they frequently negotiate with modernity. Hmm. So they do workarounds and um, they're in a sense, they're hacking. And so with the automobile, for example, many business people hire an employee, an outside non-Amish employee who provides a vehicle and serves as a driver for the business. So what about newer technology? Like do the Amish have websites? Do they have smartphones? Uh, Do they surf the Internet? I mean, we've certainly seen in the last 10, 20 years a surge in the tech that's around us um, and that has changed how most of us live, does it change how the Amish live? 
Um, let me give you an example of technology that I found very interesting. Uh, I had been reading about 3D printers for a number of years, and two years ago, I took my students on a field trip and saw one for the first time. Guess where it was? It was in an Amish lantern shop. Whoa. What he was doing is recently the Amish church in eastern Pennsylvania in Lancaster County has permitted people to use LED lights. Mm. And so they are using now LED lights in their home instead of electricity off a line, but operating them from batteries. So this young man was using these, uh, he had created programs to operate these 3D printers to manufacture a coupling that fit between the batteries and the LED lights. And it was a niche market within the Amish community. Hmm. And he was running these 3D printers off of batteries, okay? So uh, he said, <laughs> um, we, he said, we run these uh, 624. No, he said, we don't run them on Sunday, but he's right. running them 24 hours a day, the other like six days Like 24-7, but 624, right. right. Exactly. What I find fascinating here is this paradox, a fascinating paradox that you have a culture of restraint that breeds a culture of innovation. And so in many cases, the Amish are hacking. They're trying to work around the system, doing all kinds of workarounds. And these restraints really spur innovation, spur imagination, spur creativity in a fascinating way. You know, I think many of us think of the Amish as living on the land, as having barn raisings and running farms. But, you know, to the point that you were just making, there's many, many Amish uh, who run businesses and remarkably successful businesses at that. Exactly. Let me talk just a little bit about that because I find it uh, in some ways the most fascinating part of Amish culture. Across the country, about two-thirds of Amish households would get their primary income off of the farm. Um, and remember now, these are people educated at the eighth grade. Um, they have not gone to high school. They don't have technical training. They have restrictions on using uh, – that they can't use electricity off of the public line, restrictions on not using um, uh, automobiles and so on. And so what they have done is created a mini industrial revolution in the last 25 years that has uh, spawned a whole host of small uh, Amish uh, businesses that are extremely successful – and uh, they had to find, figure out ways to operate these businesses without electricity off the line. So, right, right. And so that is how they developed the power and the energy uh, to operate these businesses. I'm Kara Miller. You're listening to Innovation Hub, and I'm talking with Professor Donald Craybill about innovation in Amish communities. Um, you've actually written about a guy who had started a food business and was doing close to a couple million dollars in sales no cell phone, no email address. Right. How is that possible? Well, well, part of it is the, the Amish branding is a gift to young entrepreneurs. So um, I have a friend, that, Amish friend that runs a deli shop, okay? The products that he is selling, cheeses, bologna, all kinds of salads and so on, on this, in this deli, uh, none of that is Amish made. Mm. Uh, he buys it from other uh, distributors. 
But his family is there, the children are there, and they're at the counter selling this product. And so it's viewed as an Amish deli shop. And the only Amishness in it is that an Amish person has touched a product, uh, you know, (laughs) before it's being sold. And that branding is powerful because, again, it's evocative of uh, feelings that we have about homemade, early Americana, something that's well cared for. um, And the the young entrepreneur, uh, whether they're manufacturing farming equipment or doing construction or furniture or running a deli shop, they benefit from that brand. Yeah, it becomes you become more desirable when you're hard to get at, which is actually not something that is really that surprising to any of us in our lives. But it, it, they're like the business version of the, the elusive person, right? Exactly, precisely. Think about this for a moment. Um, here you have young people who've gone to eighth through eighth grades. Some of them have had just one teacher, 30 students in a classroom, and the message in that schoolroom is technology is not important. They don't have calculators. They don't have scientific laboratories for chemistry. Uh, They basically, there's no technology in that classroom except for a battery-operated clock and some kind of a stove. These young persons, men and women, about a quarter of the Amish businesses are owned and operated by women, how do they become successful entrepreneurs? They haven't gone to the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania or Harvard Business School. They don't have a college degree in human resource management, nothing like that. Well, and beyond that, I would say by eighth grade, certainly by 12th grade, most people expect that their kids have a real mastery of technology. Certainly, if they started their own business, there's a lot of things they could do to help themselves. Um, but, you know, here you've got a bunch of people coming out of the eighth grade who have no real sense of the technological landscape that we're in right now. And yet, the failure rate for Amish businesses is under 5%, whereas the failure rate for businesses nationwide is about 50%. And the secret to their success, the secret, I would argue, is in a single word, and that is the word apprenticeship. So when they come out of eighth grade, even while they're still in eighth grade, they're working for their uncle or their aunt helping them. And they're growing up inside the business. I see uh, young children running a cash register when they're seven or eight years of age, and they do it successfully. They're learning those skills at an early age, and then by the time they're 20, they're earning significant income. They have no college debt. They've learned the skills of that profession, and they're all set, basically, in terms of a career track for the rest of their life. So I, I know in the last couple of decades, the number of Amish have more than doubled. I think that's right. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, about every 20 years, they, the population doubles. How hard is it to sort of try to keep this idealized community intact that you're really working hard on that has a set of values when that community is very different from the world around it and the community itself keeps getting bigger and and there's you know more parts of it well i think one of the threats to the amish community is technology many of the young people have smartphones before they become church members when they're typically 18 to 22 huh. uh, and sometimes it's hard to give those smartphones up but they have and to they have to give it up to become part of the church they're supposed to okay but a smartphone 
is different than a television. The Amish have had historically always a sharp, strong taboo against television. I see. And television's a big item. It sits, you know, in a room somewhere. Right. Some would maybe hide it out in the barn in a closet somewhere. But a smartphone you can put in your pocket. Yeah. And I said at the beginning that one of their religious principles is separation from the world. Well, in the past, in Lancaster, if you wanted to really see the world, you went to Philadelphia or Washington or New York City. Right. Well, now every Amish young person can carry a smartphone in their pocket right. out in a cornfield and have all of the world at their fingertips. So I think that's a really major threat to their long-term viability. I think that's not easy to control that kind of technology in a way that you're able to control owning an automobile or having a television set, which is such a large public piece of equipment. Have you heard um, Amish people express that concern to you? Yes, very much. I think part of it is the technology changes so much and young people, 18 to 20 year olds are learning it. They have Facebook pages mm. and the Older leaders and oftentimes parents don't understand or don't really know what the kids have access right. to. And that really inverts the traditional way in which a traditional society like Amish operated where the wisdom was always in the hands of the elders and your grandparents would teach the grandchildren how to do things. And now that whole thing is flipped upside down with younger people getting uh, a lot of access to technology, particularly in terms of smartphones or small handheld devices where they can easily be hidden right. and it's hard to really control them or to actually know for the elders to know really what's going on or what they have access to. Right. Donald Craybill is the author of The Amish, among other books. He's also a professor emeritus at Elizabethtown College. Donald, thank you so much. This is great. My pleasure. Donald Craybill is part of an American Experience documentary looking at how the Amish live. We've got a clip from it on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Mark Filipino, and engineer Doug Sugarts. We also had production help from Alec Graney and Rowena Lindsay. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. PRI, Public Radio International.